This is a talk by Fred Chambers titled Spiritual Psychology 101, Buddhist Perspective, recorded January 31st, 2010, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. One of the main reasons I've enjoyed coming to the Center for Sacred Sciences is the same thing that uh, Steve mentioned here. This mission of the Center to foster a new world view in which scientific truths and the truths of mysticism are seen as different but complementary ways of viewing a single underlying reality. I've always kind of fancied myself as a radical, even though I lived in the Midwest during the 60s and kind of missed out on the whole radical <laughs> But I always thought of myself as a radical at heart, I guess. So. <laughs> Helping create a new worldview is really kind of a radical act, because it really involves a whole shift in the way humanity views itself. That is the shift between seeing ourselves as a primary existence in a world and a shifting to see consciousness as the main underlying ground of reality. So it's rather a, a big shift. Now the nuts and bolts of trying to foster this new worldview can be kind of mundane, but it really is a kind of a lofty goal to aspire to. It's really similar to the Copernican Revolution back in the 16th century when Nicholas Copernicus came up with this theory of the heliocentric view of the universe. Before that, it had always been, everyone saw the Earth as the center of the solar system. And so it was kind of a really radical shift in the way people viewed the universe. And so it took over 200 years before it was really fully adopted. One aspect of creating a new worldview is to rework some of the academic disciplines that exist now. And psychology is, is an area that's always been an interest of mine. I got a MA in clinical psychology and I've had some spiritual insights into reality, so to bringing those two together is kind of, I've always been curious about how a spiritual psychology will unfold in a new worldview. And uh, just the definition of those two words kind of gives us a little hint on what we're dealing with. So a uh, definition of psychology is the study of thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And a definition of spiritual is the nature of spirit or non-material. So when we put those together, we have the study of thoughts, emotions, and behaviors that consists of pure spirit, or consciousness. It's a word we use here. So this kind of turns psychology upside down, in a sense, because it's no longer would be viewed as from a materialist worldview where bodies and material things are viewed as the primary objects of what the universe is made of. And they try to come up with how does consciousness arise within the brain this is a view that consciousness is the primary ground of everything that exists. And bodies, thoughts, emotions, and everything arise from that ground of pure consciousness. And so one of the tasks of a spiritual psychology would be to kind of track how a person develops from pure consciousness, how this whole self gets created, and then giving some guidance on how to return to this pure state of consciousness again. Well, another thing that needs to be done is to kind of survey all the traditions to see what they have to say about psychology. So I'm just going to start with the, the Buddhist psychology today to see what they have to say. The Buddhists are always pretty good because they, they really study things really closely and observe things. And so they come up with all kinds of good lists and close observations and explanations about how things should be or how they view it. So it's a good tradition to start with. The three principles I'll talk about today is the psychology of compassion, spaciousness, which leads to wisdom, and cultivating healthy mental states. So we'll start with the psychology of compassion. 
Now, Alan Wallace, a Western-born Tibetan teacher, I believe he lives in uh, he lives and works in Santa Barbara right now. Anyway, he tells this story. Suppose you're walking out of the grocery store with two bags of groceries. You're walking out to your car, and all of a sudden somebody from the side smashes into you, knocks you down, your groceries are spilled everywhere, you get your broken eggs all over you, and the milk is spilled, tomato juice, you got uh, bean sprouts in your hair, <laughs> and, you're, and you get up, and you're really angry, and you turn to this person, and you're just, just ready to yell, what's the matter with you, are you blind or what? And you notice that they are blind. And so then your, your anger turns into compassion. You just, you're concerned about how they are. You ask them, well, are you okay? Can I help you out? And so that's kind of how we find ourselves in the world. We're always kind of misperceiving the universe, and so then we re- react out of anger and aggression rather than out of, out of compassion. And so the principle is stated this way. Compassion is our deepest nature. It arises from our interconnection with all things. So one thing we have to be aware of on the other side of this is we can't deny that ignorance and trauma obscure compassion. And this leads to anxiety, addiction, and aggression. But really the sophistication of compassion is in its simplicity. Because the more we can quiet our thoughts and let our hearts open to whatever is around us, the more compassion has a chance to flourish. Then compassion doesn't become a struggle or a sacrifice. It's just a natural reaction. It's similar to when we cut our finger. We don't think about, well, I need to do something to take care of my finger. It's just instantaneously, without, without thinking, because it's part of us, we put on a Band-Aid or whatever we need to do, put some pressure on it to stop the bleeding. It's just an instant response. And so the more we can kind of expand the boundaries of the self to see that everything around us is included in who we really are, then our natural response is compassion to whatever arises. And we can see that just a little bit in you know, anybody who is a parent, their reaction to their children. It's like our, our boundaries have expanded out to include our children. Now, even if they do something that uh, makes us angry and we don't agree with, we're, it's still bounded in this love and compassion. We still feel toward them no matter what they do. Or with pets, if you don't have kids, uh, a lot of times pets become that for people. And we feel this automatic love and compassion for our pets. And nature is another place where people experience that. Take a walk in nature or a beautiful forest, and your heart just opens. You're out there in this this beautiful space, and your heart opens, and you feel this love and compassion, kind of a oneness with with nature. Again, that's kind of a similar thing of just this love flowing out and compassion arising. And we're really, we're connected in consciousness is what the... It's what the Buddhist psychology says. And that's really different, again, like I said, it's different from Western psychology views it. They have a hard time trying to pin down what consciousness is, so they tend to kind of ignore it. If you start to get a sense of that this pure consciousness underlies everything, then you start to see other connection with, with all of life. One example to kind of give a sense of that is, this is similar to that story of the the groceries and the blind man. It's a little bit different. It's a boat floating down the river. Imagine you're in the boat. It's a beautiful sunny day with a nice warm breeze. And you're sitting back enjoying the enjoying the ride, the gentle current going down. And all of a sudden this other boat crashes into you, knocks you over, you scrape up your back and your arm and you're bleeding a little bit and punches a little hole in your boat. And you get up and again you're gonna act angrily. 
What do you, what's the matter with you? What, did you watch what you're doing with your boat? <laughs> but you notice there's nobody in the boat. It's empty. And that's actually how we can start to view life. That these boats are kind of a symbol of bodies, of, a, of human form. And the more we can see that they're really empty of any self, then we react out of compassion. Because when we see there's nobody in human forms, it's just consciousness, then we can start to relate to that. You know, we see an empty boat crash into us, and we recognize that it's a human form. But we also recognize that we've done that same thing ourselves. We've been very unskillful in life. We've gone around smashing into other people, being aggressive, or whatever the case may be. And so when we recognize that, we recognize our connection with that form, that other person. And so then we can react in a compassionate way, give them some advice about what helped us in a similar situation. And another thing to, especially in our Western culture, to be reminded of is this little voice that always comes up, this self-critical voice or self-judgment, especially prevalent in our Western society. Uh, often if we've experienced some sort of fear or trauma in our early life, then we'll develop this self-critical voice. And then compassion seems to be lost or obscured. That's kind of when we start to react out of aggression or have this anxiety and fear and then react in a way that's unskillful in life. Jesus kind of said it in a nutshell. He said, judge not, lest ye be judged. And so it's that little voice that's always arising. Once this mechanism starts going, then it's, if we have criticism of ourselves, it almost automatically comes up when we start to interact with other people. We start to be critical of them rather than being open-hearted to them. And this worse can kind of spiral down into this feeling of unworthiness, that in some sense really aren't even worthy of love. And Simone Weil, a French mystic, has a good quote about this. She says, The danger is not that the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but that by a lie should persuade itself that it is not hungry. So by starting to reawaken this love and compassion for ourself, we start to break down these coverings and these blocks, that keep us from feeling connected to, to all things in life. A small example of this from my own life is when my grandmother died, probably been about 20 years ago now, and I went back to the funeral back in the Midwest with my two siblings. And my grandmother had always been pretty nice to me, but she also was a person who had kind of a hard edge to her, and so it wasn't easy to really feel close to her. I had always had these self-critical thoughts in my mind, and so I was kind of more focused on all the critical things I saw in her life and what she was about, rather than feeling this love and compassion for her. And my sister, on the other hand, had a really pretty close relationship with her. And so it was like the day before the funeral, and we were talking, and my sister was expressing all this grief and sorrow that she felt toward, uh, toward my grandmother. And my comment was, well, I just came here to kick some dirt on her grave after they bury her. <laughs> callous statement on my part. And shortly after that time, I started on a spiritual path, and maybe five or six years after that, you know, I've been doing a variety of practices, kind of reawaken that uh, compassion for myself and others. And I was just standing in line at a, at a Burger King down in Cottage Grove, and I saw a woman that reminded me of my grandmother. And my heart just opened up to her. And I, and I started feeling this love and compassion, and tears started to come to me, because I started to feel this love for my grandmother that, it, that I really kind of had blocked all this time. 
And once I could feel that love, then I could feel this grief, you know, because then I could really feel the grief that I missed her. You know, I loved her, and so then I, I missed her. And so it really was the first time I really grieved for my grandmother. And compassion also takes courage. It's because there's these, this pain and suffering in, in everybody's life. And it takes courage to face that. And also, oftentimes, people have a fear of being overwhelmed when they start to be compassionate and take on the pain and suffering of others. And it's often because they've, they've seen this own pain and suffering in their own lives, they realize that it can be pretty intense. They fear that if they start being compassionate and feeling this love toward others, that they're going to get overwhelmed, the pain and suffering of others. But what the Buddhists say is it's really a, it's a circle, kind of like a balanced circle. So that's what we need to remember, because one practice is do a visualization of taking in the pain and suffering of others into your heart and sending out love and compassion. But it's not like you just collect it all inside of yourself and then you explode with pain or something. You breathe it in and you send out love and compassion to yourself and to others. You bring it in and, and it flows back out to yourself and others. And it's this circle that uh, includes yourself. The more you practice it, the more you see there's no way you'll, you'll be overwhelmed by this pain and suffering of others. And one more thing about compassion is there's also a fierce sword of compassion, is what the Buddhists call it. There's a no in compassion. It's not always just saying yes, yes, taking on other people's suffering. If you're in a really destructive relationship, the compassionate thing is to say, no, I can't stay here, I need to leave. Or if you have a friend or a family member who's an addict, sometimes you have to say, no, I can't help you out. You have to face the circumstances, of uh, the consequences of the things you've done. There's also a fierce quality of compassion. Again, from my life, one example is when I decided to leave the farm. I'd grown up on a farm, and after I graduated from college, I went back to farm with my father for about seven years. But I was really never very happy. Uh, part of it was my father and my personalities were totally different, and so we were always having conflicts about exactly how to do things. And part of it was farming wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to, to do something else. They wanted me to take over the family farm. That was like the thing, and it was really important to them. So I knew that they, this was not going to be an easy thing for them to hear. And so I did have to have this kind of fierce quality to just go and say, no, I, I can't do this anymore, which I did, but I, I did do it pretty unskillfully because I went down and tell them on Mother's Day. <laughs> it was probably the, the worst day of the, the year almost that I could have told them that. So I didn't do it very skillfully, but... Thanksgiving might have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Not for my mother, probably. <laughs> Try a little practice here, a little sending and taking practice. Have you ever read uh, Pema Chodron's book, Start Where You Are? She calls it Tom Land. And in Joel's book, his Way of Selflessness book, he talks about ascending and taking practice. And again, it's kind of this visualization of where you take in pain and suffering, you start with yourself, you feel your own pain and suffering and send compassion to yourself. Then you, then you go to friends or family members, and then you go to strangers, and then you go to someone who's an enemy or somebody you have really great difficulty being with. And so we're just going to do kind of a shortened version of that. We're just going to start with the self and then go to a, to a family member. And we'll do a visualization, but also I'll, I'll give a little guidance here, be kind of a guided meditation. I'll give a few lines say to ourselves in the process of this. So, just get in a comfortable position.
just start with following the sensations of your breath. to mind some pain or sorrow in your life that you've experienced recently or fairly recently. Start to feel the natural caring for yourself in the face of these sorrows or pain. Natural response to hold yourself and be compassionate to yourself. And repeat these three lines silently to yourself. May I be held in compassion. May my pain and sorrow be eased. May I be at peace. May I be held in compassion. May my pain and sorrow be eased. May I be at peace. And just return to your breath again, the sensations of breathing for a few seconds. And bring to mind a family or a friend who you feel a lot of love for. Think of the pain and sorrow in their lives. Feel this natural response to care for them, to hold their pain, to relieve them of their sorrows.
And repeat these three lines silently to yourself. May you be held in compassion. May your pain and sorrow be eased. May you be at peace. May you be held in compassion. May your pain and sorrow be eased. May you be at peace. Trying to sum up the uh, psychology of compassion. Compassion is our true nature. And one aspect of compassion that we need to be aware of, in our, especially in our Western society, is this self critical talk that we always go into our mind, the self judgment. Recognize how it blocks compassion. And it really takes courage to face this, to be compassionate to ourselves and to others. One practice that uh, helps open us up to, to relieve some of this fear of this love and compassion is the sending and taking practice that we just did. So the next thing I'm going to talk about is spaciousness. So just imagine a photograph you've seen sometime in the past few weeks or months. A photograph you've seen of yourself that's maybe 10, 15 years old. And then compare that to looking in the mirror this morning. <laughs> Maybe we need to spend more time on the first point. Right. <laughs> we have this immediate reaction that we look older, the body looks older. But yet, at the same time, we don't feel older. That's because the body exists in time, and this consciousness, which is aware of images in the body, is outside of time. And we're always ignoring this consciousness that is aware of things. The same way that a fish ignores water. It's like the story of someone talking to a fish and telling them, aren't you really grateful for the water that brings you life and creates such happiness for you? And the fish is like, what water? And that's kind of how we are. What consciousness? We're always so focused on these thoughts and feelings that arise that we're ignoring this pure consciousness that that they're arising out of. So this next principle is stated this way. 
When we shift attention from sense experience to the spacious consciousness that knows, wisdom arises. Would you say that again? When we shift attention from sense experience to the spacious consciousness that knows, wisdom arises. And the tool that we use to shift our attention is our own observation. And when we start to look closely, what we first notice is all these thoughts and images and emotions that arise in our experience. But if we continue to look, we'll start to notice the gaps between the, the thoughts. You know, there's a thought will just die down and there'll be a little gap there. <clears throat> or emotion, maybe I have some really intense emotion, all of a sudden it just dissipates. And there's this gap. And that is that's starting to be able to see that consciousness that knows everything. And we can see those gaps. The first thing we really notice about that is there, we can't really describe that. Like what color does consciousness have? Or how much does it weigh? Or where's the location of consciousness? One thing that mystics do say about consciousness is that it is empty like space. And so like space, there's clouds, big storm clouds come over, pass through the sky, birds fly through the sky, but nothing affects that space. It's unaffected. And they also talk about a mirror-like consciousness that reflects all things. It doesn't matter whether it's something good or something bad. The mirror doesn't discriminate between good and evil. It just reflects what arises. And so this space-like or mirror-like quality of consciousness is kind of this real openness, this, this wave-like wave-like aspect of consciousness. But the Buddhists also talk about a particle-like nature of consciousness that arises when we, from a sense experience. There's on sight or sound or thought that arises. And all these are momentary. They're ephemeral. They, they arise and they pass away. The thing we're always doing, we're, we're taking them to be real. Let's see all these thoughts that arises. We take them to be real, and then we miss this consciousness out of which they're, which they're arising out of. And the thing that the mystics also say is, it's not really to be indifferent to anything that arises. Things can still have meaning and value. It's like a Shakespeare play, like a Midsummer Night's Dream. It can have a lot, I mean, it does have a lot of meaning and value. You can see the interplay between the humans and the God realm. And it can really inform your life with some, with some meaning about how to see things. But it's not real. And really the greatest value of everything that arises is that it's always returning to that empty, pure spaciousness. If we're aware of that, if we can follow it back, then it's, we're right back home into this pure consciousness again. And so when we direct our gaze inside, we start to, to wonder who or what is looking. And we're gazing out, or we think, I think there's a we there looking out at the world. Who is that, or what is that? It's really similar to a movie. If you've seen uh, Avatar, it's a really hot movie lately. If you're in there, it means you're totally kind of mesmerized by this world that's created on screen. But if the projector starts to break down and starts having all these glitches in it, they'll start to notice all these, you know, just one frame, picture frame there, and then there's a gap, and there's another frame. You don't become mesmerized, you start to see all these gaps that are rising everywhere. And these gaps, as Chogun Trungpa says, another Tibetan meditation master, says these gaps are extremely good news. 
because they remind us that freedom from stories are always available. If we didn't ever experience these gaps, stories would be all there was, and there'd be no hope of ever gaining any freedom from them. So when we see gaps, that's, that's a good sign. And the more we can, we can open ourselves to that, that spaciousness, spacious awareness that exists in these gaps, then the more we can dance beautifully with life and not get caught up in all these stories. So, another little practice. Uh, this time we're going to do a, a short version of choiceless awareness. Uh, this is a practice where you start focusing on the breath. Your attention is focused on the breath, and then you expand that attention out into your bodily sensations. And then you expand out into the sound field, and then out into the sight field, and tastes and smells, and then out into the thought field, the mental realm, thoughts and images and anything else that isn't included in the in the, any of the other uh, five senses. So we're going to do just a short version of that. We'll go through a couple of the fields. Again, I'll do a little, do a little guided meditation. So we'll get in a comfortable position again. So again, start to focus on the sensations of breathing. Expand your attention from the breath into all of the bodily sensations. Try not to name sensations like pain in the back. It's just, if you want to name it, just name it sensation. It's a sensation arising. Expand your attention out to include sounds. All the sounds in the sound field arising and dissolving.
Now let attention expand evenly and steadily throughout the total field of consciousness awareness. Be mindful of all phenomena as they arise and dissolve. as you see things arise and dissolve, see if you can also get a sense of the space of awareness which all this is happening. In just meditative spaces, it's just nice just to have silence and so be the best teaching. <clears throat> so to summarize this last principle we talked about is spaciousness. Our problem is we're always ignoring this pure consciousness, the same way a fish ignores water. <clears throat> And when we can start to shift our attention to this pure consciousness that knows everything, then wisdom can arise. And this wisdom is actually just the wisdom of seeing things truly. And our own observation is the tool we use in this process. We talked about the space-like nature of consciousness and the particle-like nature of consciousness. And the more we can shift away from this particle-like nature, at least away from attention being always focused on thoughts and emotions, 
and stories, the more we can shift to this spacious awareness, that's when wisdom arises. The practice we just did to help us take a look at this is choiceless awareness practice. Okay, on to the, the last principle we're going to talk about this morning, which is cultivating healthy mental states. Here's a quote from the Buddhist text, the Dhammapada. Speak or act with a deluded mind and sorrow will follow you, as the wheel follows the ox who draws the cart. Speak or act with a clear mind and happiness will follow you as closely as your shadow, unshakable. So in Western culture, we're often taught that happiness is to be found by changing our external circumstances or something in our external environment. If we gain something or try to keep something away from us, that's, where, that's what, what is going to make us happy. But this strategy really can't work. Even from our own lives, we, know, we actually we know that because there's always pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame. No matter how much we try to grasp onto and keep the positive things in our lives, negative things just automatically arise. There's no keeping them away. So the Buddhist psychology says that happiness is actually can be found in the particular mind states in which we meet life. So pure awareness is always becoming colored or conditioned by all these thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. But if we can start to observe the mental states in which we meet them, we can realize, well, we can realize that we can observe them, and then we can realize that we can change them. And the principle is stated this way. Recognize the mental states that fill consciousness. Shift from unhealthy states to healthy ones. So they say healthy mental states create a healthy mind. Unhealthy mental states create mental distress, unhappiness, and mental illness. So they have quite of a complex scheme devised to, to explain all of this. The Buddha was quite a list maker. <laughs> he has the uh, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. There's 52 mental states. And uh, later they developed 84,000 different skillful means. <laughs> I won't focus on all these 84,000 skillful means today. We'll try to simplify this quite a bit, but there are a few things that it's good to remember. First one is pretty easy, the six senses. We just talked about those previously. There's the five senses that we all know. Bodily sensations, sight, sounds, taste, smells, and the mental field. Thoughts and images. And then there is awareness of these sense phenomena. Something arises and there's awareness of that. And then that's when the, these mental states that they talk about are, come about. When, when awareness and, and sense phenomena meet, well, then there can be a healthy or unhealthy mental state that arises that we can start to recognize and change. The three main unhealthy states are grasping, aversion, and indifference. And they give rise to a whole host of uh, unhealthy mental states. I'll just read some of these. Don't worry about remembering them. There's, give you kind of a flavor of it. It would be good to remember grasping aversion and indifference. They give rise to anxiety, envy, rigidity, agitation, greed, hate, dullness, confusion, closed-mindedness, self-centeredness, and on and on. And then there's three main healthy states. They are wisdom, love, and generosity. 
And again, they lead to a whole host of other states that I'll just read a few. Mindfulness, confidence, joy, insight, clarity, equanimity, kindness, adaptability, modesty. Just a small example is like a, a, we'll hear a sound, you know, sense phenomena arises. We can call it a bird sound arises. We have awareness of that. And now if we meet it with, with wisdom and love, and the wisdom is just to recognize that it's just a naked phenomenon arising in consciousness. And so then we just enjoy it. That's the love of just enjoying pure sound. So that would be the, the healthy mental state. The unhealthy mental state sort of grasp on to this story that arises, arises automatically. This whole story of, oh, I, re I really love birds. It's just such a beautiful day, and the nice that the birds are all out there. Oh, but what about those cats? There's always, there's too many cats always killing these birds. <laughs> I gotta really write some letters or get everybody to bell their cats so, they, so all the birds don't get killed. You know, this aversion, agitation arises around this, and that's kind of the unhealthy states that arise. If you love birds, maybe you will have this, have a desire to try to talk to people about belling their cats. But you won't have this self-righteousness about it. It'll be something you're doing out of compassion for birds, or out of wisdom and love. You'll just have this response. And so the more we foster healthy states, then the unhealthy states disappear. Because they're really, they're mutually exclusive. And when a healthy state is present, then the unhealthy state is not. And mindfulness really is the key to this whole puzzle. Because we really have to have a lot of mindfulness in our lives to really recognize these states as they arise. I mean, mindfulness really is, from my own uh, experience, takes a lot of practice. You know, just basic uh, concentration practices of meditation, of, of following the sensations of breathing. And when you get distracted, you return to those. Or practices like choiceless awareness, where you notice things arise and you let go of the, the naming of them. And you start to see that they're just... There's this pure awareness out of which things arise. You really have to continue to develop mindfulness to really start to be aware of these, of the mental states as they arise. Lama Yeshe, a meditation teacher, has this quote about becoming your own psychologist. He says, to become your own psychologist, all you have to do is examine your own mind every day. You already examine material things, like the food in your refrigerator. Why not check out the state of your own mind? It's much more important. So the first thing when we start to do this, we notice is that how habitual and conditioned all these mind states are. They just automatically arise. And it can be kind of shocking and discouraging to notice how frequent they are. Doesn't seem to be any way we can get out of them sometimes. But as long as you increase your mindfulness and stay mindful and be committed, I mean, it does take a commitment to really watch these things, then you will find you have a choice. Once you see something arise, you can always choose a healthier response. You start to let go of the grasping and aversion in your life because you can see that it's always brought you unhappiness. Achan Cha, which was Jack Cornfield's teacher in Thailand, has this nice parable of standing under a ripe mango tree. And if you have a lot of mindfulness, and you, if you're standing under a man, mango tree, you can see the rotten fruit and the ripe fruit. And you know from past experience which is, leads to health and which is, leads to sickness. So the rotten fruit... If you're going to pick that, you know from past experience, if you've eaten it before, that it's going to lead to uh, sickness and unhealthy, unhealthy conditions. But the ripe fruit will lead to happiness and healthy states of mind. So that's kind of how we find ourselves. 
Once we have this mindfulness to see mind states as they arise, we can start to let go of the ones that are unhealthy and to foster and cultivate the ones that are healthy. Okay, time for one more practice here. I'll mention the way that, that he presents his practice in the book. It's a uh, practice that you do in your everyday life. He says to pick three days where things are going really difficult. Or three times each day of the three days. Really be mindful of what's going on. And without judgment, just be aware of the mind states that are arising in your life. And then pick three days where you're feeling really positive and things seem to be going easily. And three times during those days, be aware of the mind states that arise then. And then you can start to, to notice the difference between them. So if you want to try that practice later in the next few weeks, that's fine. What we're going to do here is simplify this even more. We're going to spend the first few minutes just being aware of the story of I as it arises. Because that's usually what we get trapped in, is the story of I, all these stories that start going in the mind and create all these dramas and unhealthy mind states. Because we grasp after them, we start to believe that they're really true. And so the, for the first few minutes, we're just going to notice those and not try to change anything. Just be aware of the story as it goes along. Try to have a little bit of distance from it, not get totally wrapped up in it, but you don't need to try to stop it. Just let it keep going and kind of notice what arises. So we'll do that and then we'll switch. Then I'll just give a little guidance for the next few minutes after that. For these first few minutes, just observe the story of I. Notice any grasping or aversion. And we automatically try to reify this story, believe that it's true. Don't try to change anything, but try not to get too caught up in the story. Now for the next few minutes, whenever you're aware of the story of I arising, try to meet it with love and acceptance and wisdom. But the wisdom is just to realize that it, all these stories that we spin have always led to unhappiness in our lives. At least that's my experience. If you've seen that they've led to a lot of unhappiness in your lives, well, then just realize that you can make a choice in that moment. Just bring pure awareness to them and cease to follow them. Just let them self-liberate on their own.
So to summarize this cultivating of healthy mental states, when we start to look inward, we realize we can observe and change whatever mental states that are arising. And they really are mutually exclusive. If healthy states are present, unhealthy ones are not. And when unhealthy mental states are present, then the healthy ones are not here. And the unhealthy states are grasping, aversion, and indifference. And the healthy ones are wisdom, love, and generosity. And mindfulness is really vital in this process. We have to really be mindful of what is arising before we can choose to choose to go with the healthy states. The ripe fruit that brings us health and happiness. And the practice we just did was looking at the story of I and really being aware of this story. And notice how much it kind of automatically arises and how we have this grasping to it. The more we grasp it, start to believe that there's this I, that whenever some conflict arises or something arises in awareness that we don't want, we believe that we have to get away from that. So that's where aversion comes to. So there's this grasping aversion going back and forth. So the more we're aware of this, the more we can just meet all this with love and acceptance. And then it just ceases on its own. So as we move to the conclusion of the talk today, I want to share this quote from Lord Mancroft. He once said, a speech is like a love affair. Any fool can start it, but to end it requires considerable skill. <laughs> so it's actually similar to the delusion we have of being a separate self in the world. It's easy to start believing that. I mean, the whole society fosters our belief in, in a separate identity, a separate self that exists in this world. And it takes quite a bit of skill to get untangled from this, this whole process, this whole belief in a self. So hopefully today I've presented a few skillful means or methods to start to take a look at this, look at this process of the belief in self and how we can start to untangle ourselves. We first talked about the courage to be compassionate with ourself and others. And we did that practice of sending and taking to break down the fear of love that we often feel. And then we talked about stop ignoring the spacious consciousness out of which everything arises. It's all around us. Even though we are ignoring it, it's really there. It's, it's nowhere else it can be. It's always present. The more we stop ignoring it and start to bring it into awareness, we can start to realize the true nature of everything that is arising. And we did the practice of choiceless awareness, try to see that spacious awareness out of which things are arising. And then we talked about the mindfulness we need to observe the healthy and unhealthy mental states. And we can choose to foster or cultivate the healthy states and let go of the unhealthy ones. And one way to practice that is to observe the story of I, start to touch it with this love and acceptance, and cease to buy into this story that's always running through our minds, and start to gain freedom from that. And so I'll just leave you with this quote from the Tibetan book of the Great Liberation. In its true state, consciousness is naked, immaculate, clear, vacuous, transparent, timeless, beyond all conditions. O oh, nobly born, remember the pure open sky of your own true nature. Any questions, comments?
What was the first one called? The practice where you notice sensation. What do you call it? Is that the choiceless awareness? I noticed that when I had back pain and I just said sensation, I just noticed that it was sensation that it went away. In the past, if I'd let go of back pain, I'd go, oh, my back's hurting, and I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to sit here. <laughs> you know, so it, that story just starts running on its own. And when I just said sensation, it went away. I mean, that usually happens. We can't use it as a trick to get rid of pain, but when we stop this story about it, we can't have pain that lasts quite a while, but if we just bring awareness to it, whatever it is, it just dissolves on its own. And the more we have this story, get involved in this story of, I have this pain, or I need to get rid of it, the more it sticks around, the more it continues to, to be present. Yeah, Harumi. But I couldn't, I really couldn't, like yesterday, we were talking about the grocery store. I had to take both my kids to grocery store, not the one that I usually go, looking for specific items, and it was a rainy day, and there was full of people. Finally, we got everything in the cart, and of course, my cart is that enormous one with the car shaped and <laughs> the handle, and so finally, I was just about to get my turn, and then my cashier goes, Miss, this is express lane. And I saw, says, about 12 items. So I sort of roughly counted, and then I had probably 12, or maybe 14. <laughs> you know, just says, it didn't say 12 under. I said, okay, I could make it here. But then, like, she gave me the look, and I just couldn't stand up for myself. And I said, oh, gosh. And so back up and just went into other line and of course the person in front of me had like um, 20 cans of beans and <laughs> just ton of stuff and this was just a couple and they decided oh I need such and such and like oh please don't get more stuff but they had to go back and look for something else <laughs> meanwhile I was waiting in the line with the kids we went there to look for a particular kind of bubble bath. Well, turned out the one we picked wasn't the bubble bath. So we had a choice of not going back to look for or just not get this one that we had on our cart. So I just talked to my kids and said, now they did not want to give up their spot because they've been waiting for a while. And so, okay, but then like just take forever to get our turn. We were probably waiting in a line for like 20 minutes. Mm. My son was so concerned about his ice cream sandwich melting away. And <laughs> I started to have the same kind of thoughts, like, oh gosh, I don't want to just have this totally melted yucky thing and just go home and feed that and just get more mess. And it's just like totally my story of why I keep going. And I was just so annoyed, and I couldn't just stop my thought. I mean, that's often how we start out. It seems like we're trapped in these thoughts that are going on. But it's not really the case. I mean, this last practice we did of, of noticing this story of I and these healthy and unhealthy states, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing over and over, where you get trapped in these stories. If you can bring your mindfulness to that, or the more you can bring mindfulness to recognize, okay, this story is going again. 
and recognize that it's always brought you suffering in the past. So then you can see, why am I choosing to follow this story? Why don't I just notice that it is arising and try to let it go? It's happening in front of you, though. It's really happening. I can't do that. That was happening. Just kept getting antsy and just touching this. And now it's like, this is so happening. It wasn't not happening. Right. It was happening, but what exactly was happening? Again, it's like ignoring that consciousness that everything arises out of. Now, all these things that can upset us, it can happen, but what is, is the true reality of all of that? Kids are grabbing things and touching things. But it's all, again, it's always how do we respond to that? What's our response in life? We can meet it with anger and aggression or, or get upset. It's all unhealthy. I mean, we can recognize it. We've done this so many times that it really is an unhealthy thing. Again, I'm not saying this is an easy process. It's simple, but it's not easy. Because we we're so conditioned to get into these states and to follow this belief that we're an I and to believe everything that's happening. And so it's a process of starting to recognize that this, this pure awareness is always present also. What is all this arising out of? Yeah, man, that's some advice here. <laughs> how funny it was when you told the story right now. <laughs> Just imagine the possibility that you could see the humor right in the middle of the situation. That's the kind of freedom he's talking about. Yeah, but... Sometimes, I mean, we've all been in this situation, or some version of it. Right. So, lots of times, lots of times. So, one trick that, I call it a trick, I'll call it a technique. It sounds so much better. Um, Is to say to myself, self, we've been here before. This doesn't work. So right now, how would I do it different? And just see what comes up. That's good. You never know. Really, if you start to create some spaciousness around the whole situation, that's when you can be creative. A new approach just kind of automatically arises. It's like, that's a good technique to try. Yeah, Matt. Just as an illustration of the point, I was just on a couple of night solo retreat in a shack out in the woods. And the first message I get on my cell phone when I get back to the car was from a police department. It said, urgent message. <laughs> and this is somebody from a police department. We need to talk to you about a truck that you used to own, you know, please call us back as soon as possible. So I'm like, I never really owned a truck, except that one truck, you know, I'm like trying to figure it out. So I call him back. It turned out that a friend of mine who lives in Maui had sold a truck to somebody named Matt. And when he was trying to find the phone number to give the cops, because the truck had been found at the scene of a crime, right? <laughs> he gave him my number instead of the guy who was in Maui. You know? so, I'm dealing with this really grumpy cop on a Sunday, and I, I didn't even know, I couldn't tell where they were or anything. So I was trying to figure it out. Here I am, what's going on? Really, so then I called Tim up, and it was really funny, because it was a great re-entry phone call. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just, just yesterday, I got my credit card bill, and there's I go through all the items, and and one of the items was a donation that I had made, a fifteen dollar 
donation to Haiti through Oxfam, Oxfam, but it said fifteen hundred. And you know, I sort of I I started spiraling. I got to make some phone calls. How am I going to pay this money? Oh my gosh, you know. And in the middle of that, I just went. I don't know. Something intercepted. You know, when I saw myself spiraling, I said, "Okay, I just I can't do anything till Monday." I'm cool, and I've been cool ever since. And I don't know how that happened. But it's that I think that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it just it just happens. Once you let go of all these stories that we create yeah. and meet it with acceptance, I mean, they just dissolve on their own and we gain freedom from them. I still don't know where I'm going to get $1,500. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I like what you said about um, the gaps between thoughts and how you can experience the stillness and the spaciousness in this gap. And I was wondering if these gaps become longer or more frequent just as a result of practice or if they are at all subject to our volition in the moment. Well, it's it's the more we try to turn our attention to them, the more spaciousness we're able to see. Not an easy process. I mean, it's simple. They're always there, but we can't describe these, what's in this gap. And there's no labels we can attach to it. It's not a thing. See, our, our attention is always trying to find something in awareness. We're habitually conditioned to look for things and to identify with things, talk about things. And so when we see this, it's always there. I mean, it's always present. But since it's not a thing, then attention just skips right over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more practice you do, the more you're, you're able to kind of be with that and just kind of rest in it and be curious about it, then the more spaciousness you can have in your life. Yeah. In my practice, it's not so much a matter of the more you focus on the space, the more space there is, because space is really all there is anyways. And the thoughts that come in and going are the stories that we get wrapped up in. That's what we're choosing to cover up the space. But whether or not we're paying attention to some story about it that we're talking about, the space is there anyways, whether or not you're paying attention to that. So it's not so much of the more you pay attention to the space, the more space there is, it's the less you pay attention to the story by, the more you recognize the space is already there because you're not so wrapped up in the story by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Linda, uh, thank you for a presentation that I thought was very clear and extremely helpful to me. Thank you. Yeah, ditto. You're welcome. So, why don't we bring the uh, morning to a close? There's some tea back there. And until we meet again, peace to you.